Good morning, church. It's wonderful to be here. I, this is, uh, you know, always the second service is sort of like a goodwill message. It's been tried. And so, so we, we sort of get an idea whether the thing will fly by shooting the first gun in the morning, and then we try it on you folks again, so it works good. I was telling them this morning, Ken was uh, asking me about water, and of course I love my water. I love my, uh, my water and my uh, ice, but I was speaking in a church up in Seattle just shortly, a month or so ago, and uh, they had a big podium like this, and it had a little shelf here, and they asked if I wanted water, and I told them that would be fun. And during the early part of the message, I bumped that glass of water, and it hit me about right here. <laughs> and it ran down both legs, and it just made it very difficult <laughs> to get out behind the pulpit, which I like to do, and move around and look at people in the eyes. But when you look like you're 70, almost 70 years old, and you wet your pants, it's uh, rather embarrassing. But I'm glad you're here today. I have uh, a couple of sermons that I was going to give here. When Ken called me, he invited me to preach, thought we would speak on something from my counseling work, so I prepared a message along those lines, and then the last couple of weeks have been uh, very difficult weeks for me, and the Lord has given me another message for me because I've been struggling in my Christian life a little bit. So the question was, is which sermon would be best here? One on marriage and family, which I love, and uh, I just rejoice in family life and in parenting stuff. I love working with people. In fact, I so enjoy having people in my office. I really don't consider myself a public speaker. I feel like I'm better as a personal worker where I work with folks. So something out of my marriage work would have been good, but this other issue has been really troubling me for the last couple of weeks. It all started with a dear friend of mine that I had to bury. I've had to do three funerals, leave three this, uh, so far this year. And on one day, I had a funeral to do and a wedding. Now, you can get real confused in that. And you can say, well, he died to his wife, and we're getting them married. I mean, you can say a lot of things that don't line up, so you got to be careful when you marry and bury on the same day. But one of the people that I had to bury was a young lady that I'd led to the Lord many years ago, 20-some years ago. Her and her husband were separated at the time that I met them. And their marriage was restored. They both came to know the Lord. They grew in our church. Uh, She was 51 years old when she died. Uh, She was a remarkable young lady. She took God's word, applied it to her life in a way that was very transforming. 
They raised their kids as a Christian family, but she got cancer nine years ago. And it just breaks my heart to even think about it and talk about it today. Because she was such a dear person to me. It's like burying one of my kids. And the question is always, why her when there's so many other people that it seems like you could choose? Why? And I was reminded of how weak my faith was in trying to answer and work through that question. That trials do come to families. We do not live and we should not live in a pain-free environment. God uses our suffering to grow us. And I struggle with that. It's easy to preach on grief, which I did just last month in Houston. It's very hard to apply this stuff to my life. I was going down the road just last week, two weeks ago, about two weeks ago, this all happens just boom, boom in my life. Going down the road, there's a side road. I've had a night of counseling. It's about 9.30 at night, traveling down the road. I look to my right, and a car is going by, we figured, at about 115 miles an hour. And I watched that car in a 10-second interval go off the road, go in the air, spin, crash, and for 500 feet left a debris trail of fenders and hoods and everything. I get 911 on the phone, drive around to the little town of Sedalia, which was about a mile where I live, back on this road, pulled my truck up, looked at that car, totally destroyed, sitting there steaming, and walked to the driver's door the airbags were all blown, and there was no driver in the car. So I walked down the debris field, eventually found a 22-year-old young man dead in the ditch. I spent about 15 minutes there. And it was the same thing for me because, you see, this is coming in a season in my life where that question, why, why did this happen and why am I here? That was the thing. Why am I here? What was God's purpose in having me here with this poor dead boy? And what am I supposed to do? Those men who were with us yesterday, we spoke about the garden. You have to identify the garden in your life so you know how to deal with your ministry. You've got to know who's in your garden. Your family, your friends, you've got to know who those are. Well, in my life, all of a sudden, here's this life in my garden. What do you do? So we decided, my wife and I, we decided that we would call the family, which we did. Called the family. They invited us to come over and meet. Little did we know what we were getting into. When we drove up to the house, there was probably 30, 35 cars in the driveway. There was 65 or so people in the house. We didn't know any of them. And inside of our automobile, when we parked, my heart just started pounding, pounding. Do you know why? Because there was no faith here. 
I was struggling inside of me because we were going into an area that was pretty scary. We didn't know who these people were. It was like a 15,000 square foot house. And so we went in. But in all of this time, I'm realizing something about Doyle Roth. How that being a servant of Jesus Christ comes with suffering. It comes with struggles. And when you open the door and you go out of the car and you decide to go there, that is a faith issue. And I must confess, it was not comfortable for me. Anyway, we spent time with the family. It was a blessed time. And at the end of our meeting, by the time we were done, everybody in the house was in the basement. We started with just the mom and dad and the brother and the sister. By the time it was all over, everybody in the house was downstairs. And I must have been there for two and a half hours or close to two and a half hours talking about the things of God. And we all joined in prayer. And it reminded me of something very important that in the midst of all of the suffering, there's a place for rejoicing for the Christian. There's a place where we can be excited about God, and we can be excited about what God is doing, but so often it comes through painful experiences, the death of a loved one, a frightening situation with a friend. It can be like it was last night. Last night, I'm stuck in Houston. God help me, stuck in Houston go out of my motel and it's hailing. I mean, it was a hail of a storm. I said hail, H-A-I-L of a storm. Did you get that, everybody, on the same page? Take that off of the recording, would you please? <laughs> oh, it was coming down in buckets. And my cousin's boy, who I've tried to get some time with because he's an unbeliever, he gets, we're in his car and he says, well, let's, I think it's time for us to go. Well, the water's running, I mean, deep. Down we go, out in the road. Sure enough, about a mile from our hotel. <laughs> so we sit in the car for an hour and a half as the water is rising. And my feet are up here, and pretty soon they're up on the dashboard. And I'm telling him, the water's getting higher. We're going to have to evacuate. But while I was sitting there, we were talking about spiritual things that he needed to hear about Noah. It was an appropriate text, didn't you think? I mean, don't you think that was appropriate? I thought it was appropriate. We're going to drown. We're going to have to swim. And he can't swim, so he's going to be left behind. But we're trying to decide whether we're in or out. But the subject was great, the judgment. But it came with this time of suffering. And so we decided we better vacate the car, opened the car, the water came in, and we went out in water about this deep. But the gospel was shared. And as I finally made it to my bed about 12 or 12.30 last night, I said to myself, this is the message. It's through when we're out of our comfort zone that all of a sudden God is working in a powerful way. You know, the comfort zone is a destination. A lot of us get there and stay there. But out of the comfort zone, good things happen. 
Now, you will never hear Ken give that long of an introduction. <laughs> Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians. And we'll take a look at the Apostle Paul. And we'll take a look at his suffering. Paul wants to defend his apostleship. He wants to remind the Christian people at Corinth about his life. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to look at verse 1. And I'm going to, for the sake of time, I'm going to sort of leap through this passage. We'll sort of jump through it. And I'm going to make some recommendations or some comments as we go through it as we leapfrog through this. Would you all stand as we read together this precious uh, section of Scripture? And you might just want to note a couple of things as you go home today that you can study further. Notice as we begin. And working. Now, that is the first word that I like to underscore as I'm reading this passage. Because it reminds me that the Christian life is not a leisurely ride. There is work involved. And you're going to see later Paul uses the word labor. The Christian experience involves our work and our energy. In the Christian life, it's not sitting in the recliner. It is a work. Working together with him. That is to say, you're working with me. I'm working with you. Together we are working with him. It is God's agenda. It is God's word. It is God's dealing with us. We are together servants of his. We are ambassadors for this message. We urge you, it goes on, to not receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, don't take the grace of God as it relates to salvation and stop there. The grace of God continues in our work. And Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it was by the grace of God that he was what he was. I am what I am, he says. And his grace towards me was not in vain. You get that? It was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly, yet not I. But the grace of God was with me. So working keeps us from the grace of God being in vain. There are things that we do. Now, that we're not saved by works, but the grace of God compels us to work. Let's read on. At the acceptable time I listened to you, and the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, could we just pause here one moment, and let me just remind you of Paul's urgency. This is God's word talking to us. There is an urgency that he wants us to understand, and it concerns itself with salvation, and we might even say with unsaved or lost people. This is God's word to the lost as well as ourselves. And there's an urgency about evangelism that we should learn from this. Giving no cause, verse 3, for offense in anything in order that the ministry not be discredited. In other words, live a life, Paul says, living a life that does not bring shame or disgrace 
on the ministry. He wants to defend this. But in everything, we are to commend ourselves as servants of God. Now, that applies to everybody in this room. Work, evangelism, servants of God. This is what God wants us to be and to do and to live. We are servants of God. And let's read on now. In much endurance, some of your Bibles might say patience, but it's not that we're just sitting around, folding our hands, letting tribulations wash over us. It's not about that. It's endurance, with endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses. You can group those three things together, and you can say those are the kinds of things that are general struggles and trials in life. Paul had general struggles. He missed red lights. He was out in the cold. Just general things that happen to everybody. In beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults. There were sufferings that he had, and you can group those together. They are more directly related to being afflicted upon him by others. They came from the outside. We don't necessarily see the imprisonment today. But we do have people who laugh at us, scorn us for our gospel. Read on. In labors, there's that word. We're workers, right? But it's in labor, in sleeplessness, and in hunger. You can group those together and you can say these are the things that Paul imposed on himself. There were times when he was sleepless. There were times when he was hungry. It was a labor. It was a work for him. Here are his resources. Look at this beginning at verse 6. Resources for the servant of God. <coughs> in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness, for the right hand and the left. You sort of see the warrior. He's got these various things that he's using in the right hand and in the left hand. Those are his tools. Then you read on. And beginning at verse 8, it is a, it is a contrast between what man thinks of Paul and what God's conclusion is regarding Paul's life. And so let's look at those together. By glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report. Many people gave Paul an evil report. They did not like him. God gave him a good report. Regarded as deceivers and yet true. Paul was true. As unknown, yet well-known, as dying, yet behold, we live. As punished, yet not put to death. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. You may be seated. Thank you for going on an extended ride through the Scriptures. When you read the scriptures, it doesn't hurt for you to stop and meditate on those words. 
Pay more attention to your reading. It's little words like workers, laborers, things like that will help us in our Christian life and our Christian experience. I was a young man when I went to the Billy Graham crusade. It was about 1965 in Denver. And I met a man, I went to the crusade as a counselor that was in training. And I was going to be trained to help other people. And it was at this particular moment in my Christian life that God touched my life. He touched my life through a man by the name of Charlie Riggs. He was a big, strong military man. And he was the one that taught the classes. Charlie gave me an, a, a vision for really what spiritual ministry and what servanthood really is for those of us that are involved in Christianity. Since that time, I've been in counseling for 40 years and I've touched just about everything you can imagine. And what I have learned about me and what I have learned about others is that most of us are interested in pain-free living. People come to my office. They come with a lot of heavy hearts. They come with financial stress. I have marriages come in my office that are totally upside down. And they want to have some relief. They want to experience some peace in their home, peace in their families. They want to have no more broken relationships. A wife is tired of her abusive husband who speaks to her harshly. A husband is frustrated because of his wife and the way she manipulates him. They want to have me fix a lot of this. They're tired of the criticism that comes to them, the betrayals. I have people come in my office that want to be pain-free because they're suffering in the inner man. They're suffering from depression. Somebody talking to me? Oh, hello. Thought I heard something. Are you talking to me back there? They're pain, they want to be pain-free from depression. Anxiety. That was me driving into the, to the uh, house. I, I didn't want that. I didn't want to have to confront this. It was too hard for me. Sadness filled my heart as I preached the sermon for my dear Susan. It was hard. I could have avoided that by saying no. But other things come. Idolatry. Lust. Just had a man in my office last week who's dying from lust. He's so involved with pornography. Jealousy, biting tongue, all of these different things. People want to be pain-free. Can you relate? That's why pain medications are so huge. That's why they're selling off the shelves like crazy. We have people in our church that have addiction problems with pain medications. We've had to go through counseling. The elders have been involved because it's a very serious thing as people try to quiet themselves down. 
But it's not just from these financial stresses or from depression. There's another area in my life that I think I should mention, and that is we like to be pain-free from what it means to be committed as a Christian. Because that's going to come with a lot of sacrifice. We like to be able to go to church. We like the mega church model. Now, I believe in Ken. I believe in Kelly. What they're doing here, the elders, the deacons, this is a good thing. You have a wonderful church here. But we need to all be pushed, pushed, and pushed more and more. The church really serves its purpose of building up the saints of God, but also has a heart for evangelism and outreach to others. The mega church movement is taking people lock, stock, and barrel. We had a church that was just recently built in our area. It went from a small church to about a 25 or $30 million campus. And they have sucked enormous groups of people into this large, massive church from little churches where there's people that they could minister to and care for. But what they want to do is they want to get in the big mega church where they can sort of coast and they can have a comfortable Christianity. The prosperity gospel, we hear all the time, do we not? Where it's going to be comfortable. You're going to be fine. You're going to have lots of money. You'll have nice cars. It's a feel-good Christianity. It's getting the weekly sermon. It belongs to the holy huddle. You belong to the holy huddle. You circle the wagons. You draw your children into your tight little groups. It's paranoid parenting, paranoid Christian life, paranoid living. And we forget that we are people of the gospel, the Great Commission, And so when I look at this, it's easy for me to just be a churchman, to do my thing at my church and not go to people's houses where they just have had death. It's hard to do certain things. It's hard to reach out to your friends who are at your club or to your neighbors. It's hard to really concentrate and be strategic on the Great Commission. That's hard work. It's not just about rearranging the furniture in our lives and making sure that we're all happy in our church. I look at it through the eyes of John chapter 5, the pool of Bethesda. I look at it as the transformation that Jesus brings to a person's life rather than the man just sitting there waiting for someone else to put him in the water. Let the man do it. Let the man do it. You need to have a transformation that only Jesus can bring. And the more you grow close to him, the deeper and richer your commitment is to not only this church, to not only serving these people, but it is to the community and to those that are outside. There needs to be more strategy for the gospel. We speak of the gospel. Friends, we enjoy the gospel. We often repeat to ourselves the great text in Ephesians. Yes, it is for by grace are you saved through faith. We understand that. 
But we don't like moving on in that text where it says you're created under God into good works. That there's certain things then that we need to do. The scriptures teach us that the road of the Christian life is not an easy road. I've been reminded of that as I've told you. The way up or the way out of our difficult things is through the cross. Not as a necklace, but it tells us something else. It's a sacrificial life. It's a life that is a servant life. There's four different things I'd like to just underscore for you as we go through our thinking on this. If it is true, and I assume that you all agree it is true, if a man, if any man will come to me, what's the rest of it? If any man will come to me, let him deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. Now, what are the practical implications of that to you and to me? What is the practical application of that when it comes to your family life? How does that fit in your marriage? Self-denial. How does that fit in your hospital visitation? Are you visiting people that are sick? How does that fit in your Bible study work? I am so convicted by this message, I should close in prayer, because it is so real to me, because I see how much I vacillate in my Christian experience, and I struggle with things, faith issues, doubt issues, fear issues, but God keeps pushing us on, pushing us on, and the four things that I want you to remember is one, the Christian life is a life of servanthood. It is serving other people. It is a life that Jesus demonstrated for us who came not to serve. Came not to be served, but to serve. Excuse me. We then that are strong, Paul writes in Romans 15, ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not please ourselves. What does that tell you, Christian friend? It means you pick up the phone. And you call the person who's sick. It means you break out your pen and you write a care card to the dear family that just died, to the, to the family. You go visit them. You t- I mean, you know what's going on in your neighborhood. Paul says, I have made myself a servant of all in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But it's not just servanthood. It is a sacrifice. It is the giving up of self. It's the Romans 12, presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. There's something about the cross and there's something about the gospel that changes our whole perspective about things. And that text goes on to remind us of that because in Romans chapter 12, it wasn't just that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, but in doing that, your mind is transformed. You think differently, not being conformed into the image of the world, but you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see things differently because you're a servant of God. You see your extracurricular activities through the lens of the cross. And you see that people are going to hell. And you see that the gospel is their only saving faith in that. 
You see them because your mind has been changed. And you understand then that pain-free Christian living is not what we see in the Bible. The third thing is personal selflessness. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interest, but the interest of others. Does that fit in your life? The whole idea of personal suffering, Peter writes about in 1 Peter chapter 12. Beloved, do not be surprised. In other words, you better expect it as a Christian. If you're really committed, if you're really growing, if you're really maturing, if you're living out the Great Commission, don't be surprised. You're going to have difficulties along the way. At the fiery ordeal that is among you, which comes upon you for your testing, it's going to come. I had a test, and really, in a sense, I failed because I doubted right at the beginning. God gave me a great opportunity to walk through that door, and I had to wrestle with myself. I had to wrestle with my faith. I had the opportunity to just in faith do it, but I hesitated. Praise God we move forward with that, but it's the doubts that concern me. To the degree that you share, Peter says, in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. In other words, there's something in your mind, again, that says, this is a good thing. So that at the revelation of his spirit of glory and of God rest on you, make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer. We want to make sure that we don't suffer because we're doing foolish things. And we entrust our souls to our faithful creator in the final part of that verse. The pain-free zone, or the comfort zone, as I like to call it, is really the life of self-indulgence. It can be a Christian life that is built around just what feels good to us here at Lakeside Bible Church, at Littleton Bible Chapel. It's a life that just we minister to each other, we take care of one another, we have our friends, we have our community, that's all good. But what I want to leave you with today is that can be very, very pain-free. You bring people into your church that are homeless. You bring people into your church who are your workmates, who have broken marriages. You bring people into your church that have issues with substance abuse. You're going to change the whole chemistry of your church. But they need Christ. They need Christ. And we're the ones that take them that message. I told him this morning, wonderful, a wonderful experience of mine was going to uh, Seattle. I was speaking in Seattle, and I had a rare opportunity of going through an apple factory. And it was a, it was a wonderful thing. I'll just give you just a few little interesting things about it. Uh, it was a, you, you go into a warehouse that is probably at least twice the size of a football field. And it is um, maybe 50, 60 feet high. And in the crates that are like four foot by three foot by two foot, they are all filled with apples and they're stacked like 20 high. And you go into this warehouse, oh, the smell is wonderful. Can't you just imagine what that would smell like? But something very interesting about the apples, 
Because when you buy them, you know, they, they harvest the apples in like August or so, and there's only one harvest. It's not like they come all the time. And this particular plant, the area that I was in, puts up about 70% of all the apples in the country. So the apples you get in the store are fresh. You know why? Because in that warehouse, they're all asleep. They call the apples all asleep that are in this warehouse because they keep the temperature at like 33 degrees. And it causes the apples to not rot or get soft, but they stay hard and they stay fresh because the apples sleep. And I thought that was a very interesting thing because we do have fresh apples all the time. But they also said something else that was kind of interesting. They manufacture trees that they plant. They take a root from a, they have a root, and as that root grows, they stick in that the branches that they want. And they sort of build these trees out of other trees that are really productive. So they, they sort of make their own trees. So when you go and you look at their orchards, they'd have wires like this, and the trees are put against those wires. And here's, here's where the sermon illustration is at. They take these branches and they bend them down until they almost break and they wire them onto those wires. You know why? Because a tree that is under stress produces better apples. That's a sermon illustration right there. The people of God that are really under stress produce better apples. Christians that are really sacrificial and living selflessly produce better apples. I don't go to the movies a lot, but I did go to the movie The Life of Pi. How many have seen it? Several of you have seen it. There's a sermon illustration in that one too. I often run into sermon illustrations as I run around the secular world. <laughs> Uh, the tiger was named, this young man right here, this young man right here, look at me, young man, look at me, up here, yeah, sit right there. What was the name of the tiger? Okay, who's next? Who's next? Okay. What is it? Nope. Richard Park, Michael Parker. Was it Michael or Richard? Richard Parker was the name of the tiger. And the story was this, for those of you that have not been there, the tiger, well, they had a, um, they were moving a zoo on a ship, and there was a crash. And the animals all died except the tiger and one other zebra or something that ended up in the lifeboat. They ended up in the lifeboat together. And so the young man, Pi, and the Richard Parker, they have to learn to live on this boat together without killing each other, and the tiger wants to eat him because he's hungry, and the boy wants to be on the boat because he's drowning, so they have this problem. But there was one phrase in that movie that just stuck with me, and it was this. Pi says, my fear of the tiger keeps me alert. My fear of the tiger keeps me alert. There's something about that focus 
that there are things out there like this. My fear, or we can say this, my concern over others keeps me alert. My neighbor, who is an infidel of infidels, who needs Christ, keeps me alert. There's something to be said about that story as well. Because those of us who love the Lord make choices, don't we? We make choices as soon as you go out of here. As soon as you leave this auditorium, you're going to make choices. What's first? Ha ha, lunch. We've got to have a nice lunch, something good to drink, nice lunch. And then what's next? Could be the sofa. Could be the television. Could be the Orioles game. Could be anything. We make choices. The choice that God would have us consider is the choice that revolves around sacrificial things that revolves around the servanthood. Rather than going home and sitting down for an afternoon of vegging and closing the night out with popcorn and nuts and a Coke, what can you do to spread the gospel or what can you do to encourage your church family? And I'm just using Sunday as an, as an obvious opportunity. But there's ministry opportunities throughout the week. We choose to live sacrificially we choose to have behavior that speaks of our selflessness. We choose to reach out to people to get out of our comfort zone. We choose that. Man is responsible, but God is shaping us through all of this. He's growing us. He's maturing us. He's developing us. And he uses suffering, and he uses the trials, and he uses the difficulties in life to do that. Let me just share some verses with you that sort of underscore this. James chapter 1 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing this, knowing now, listen, knowing that this testing of your faith produces something in you. It produces endurance that you might be complete, that you not lack anything. Trials really work in our best interest, so it pays to not live in the pain-free zone. Romans chapter 5, Paul says, We exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance brings what? Proven character. Proven character brings hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is, given, who is given to us. Real spiritual growth, real proven character comes when you're away from the pain-free zone. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the suppressing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. This is my Susan girl. This is my little cancer girl I had to bury. In every way she was afflicted, but she was not crushed. She was perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body, of, in the, body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we 
who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Real spiritual strength and glory to the cross and to Jesus is the result of not being pain-free. The choice that we make concerning marriage and family, parenting, church life, the Great Commission, all of those different things will cause you to move out of the land of comfort. It will be sacrificial. It's just the way it works. I was talking to our small group ministry. We have a bunch of men and women who are involved in our small group ministry at Littleton Bible Chapel. And I wanted to underscore this in our small group work that really every Christian group should have a challenging ministry outside of itself. So many Bible studies come together, and I'm not against this. Please do not feel that I'm condemning or judgmental or anything, trying to expand our thinking. We get together for Bible studies. Men get together. Women get together. Those are good things. Please continue to do those things. But add something to your ministry, your Bible study group. Add a challenging ministry. Decide that you want to do something, maybe overseas. Decide that you want to do something, maybe with a pregnancy center. Decide that you want to take on a family that's poor and have some strategic involvement in somebody besides yourself. It doesn't hurt for us to make choices like that. My wife and I, where the direction of our, uh, our auto victim is the boy that was killed. Since we met with the family, we've met with the daughter, we've met with the son, we've met with the mom twice. We're going to have dinner with mom and dad. We're going to have, try to organize an unsaved Bible study because these people are unsaved. So we got two or three people that we know are unbelievers. We'd like to have an unbeliever Bible study. That sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? But it's a Bible study that really is in their comfort zone and not in ours. My comfort zone is get a bunch of saints together and talk about eschatology or something like that. But their comfort zone is race boats and race cars and, and lots of money and whatever. Well, let's get them involved in a Bible study on their turf. So you can pray about that, that God will do something in that regard. But we have to make choices about things like that. Everybody, I think it's fair to say, I think this is fair to say, please, I don't want to exaggerate, I think this is fair to say, I think everybody in this church needs to have somebody outside of this church that they're caring for. They need to have some unsaved person that they're loving. They need to have somebody outside of this church that they're praying for. And their kids, their kids are watching mom and dad. They're watching mom and dad not be just totally isolated in Lakeside Bible Church. They're seeing mom and dad really living out the Great Commission. We want our kids to live for God, right? We want our kids to grow. We want them to become strong. They're looking at you. They're looking at me. Does it get bigger than this? It's the whole world. Everybody in this church ought to pick up somebody that they minister to strategically for the glory of Christ and the gospel. Now, if you're here today and you do not know Christ, this message has probably left you spinning in your head. 
If you do not know Christ as your Savior, then this is the time where you have to stop and you have to say, what in the world is this guy talking about? All of this issue about sin, all of this issue about grace, all of these things, and you'll have to connect with who you came with and you'll have to look into this matter of salvation. I want to close with David's psalm. In Psalm 51, it's the great psalm of confession where David confesses his sin and he asks God for two things. He wants to have truth in the inner parts. Secondly, he wants wisdom in the inmost place. Truth in the inner parts, wisdom in the inmost place. What David was saying, and it is so true, it's so true of me at places, that there is a gap, a large gap, between my stated beliefs, what I say, I believe, and my inner condition. That's what David was saying. There's something wrong in the inner man. What I believe and how I am on the inside is different. And he wants to confess that. He wants to deal with that. And I'm calling you as a church, me as a preacher this morning, that we need to face what's going on in the inner man. It reflected the shallow depth to which God's word penetrated into David's heart. There was a shallowness affiliated with that. And I think we could confess the same thing. I'm looking for my closing thought, and it is apparently lost. Here it is. On that theme, the shallow depth to which God's word had penetrated into us. Again, we speak of things like the Great Commission. We often talk about lost people. But the question is, is do we do it? Has it affected the inner man? And here's the closing thought. I hope you enjoy this, and I hope it brings conviction. To the degree that his wisdom does not reach our innermost parts, to the degree that God's wisdom does not reach our innermost part, that his spirit does not transform the very core of our being, you with me? Then it's to that degree that we have become like the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day. This was not easy to write for me because of what's gone on the last couple of weeks. This brings a focus to my Christian life that's very uncomfortable. We become experts in the word but devoid of its power. We have mouths that speak of godliness but our hearts that deny it. 
And so a time of reflection for all of us is healthy. We can step back a little bit. We can ask God what needs to change in the innermost part of my life. Is there agreement between belief and lifestyle? Are we doing the things that we say we ought to be doing? Well, God uses our trials and our suffering, and I hope that he will use yours to draw you closer to him. I want to thank you for being a part of your church. Thank you to Ken and the elders for having me come. And I hope this message is not too burdensome for you. It has been for me. It's a matter of great conviction and reflection in my own heart and life. And we can all learn at whatever levels we are in our Christian experience. We can learn from our troubles and our struggles. We can learn to be better. We can learn from our marriage failures. We can learn from parenting problems. We can learn as we see God in them. Let's close in a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we just want to thank you for your word today. It's always difficult to have the sword of the Spirit expose us. It's difficult, Lord, when we realize that it, it can separate the bone and the marrow, and we get a good look at what's going on in the inner man. It makes us really uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable as I even speak it. But I just pray, Father, that you will use these few words for your glory, that you will, through these words, minister to your people, through these words that you will bring real revival in the hearts of those who have heard it, that you will use your word to really change direction in people's lives, that you will use your word to help people understand their servant responsibility, the sacrificial elements of Christian living, the selflessness that is portrayed through the apostle Paul, and how that you use suffering to grow us and mature us and cause us to be better people. Lord, we just pray and ask you to touch our hearts today, for we pray this word in Jesus' name. Amen.